I'm Matt Ingram. I'm a musician, a producer, and a co-owner of Urchin Studios in East London. In these podcasts, I'll be talking with creative individuals that I know and admire about music, art, the creative process, and of course, whatever else comes up. Joining me today is the legendary A&R man, Chris Briggs. In a career that spanned over 35 years, Chris has worked with artists as diverse as Def Leppard to Robbie Williams to Laura Marling. We spoke at his office at Sony Music Headquarters in central London. So yeah, thanks for, for taking the time to do this. And I just wanted to start actually by saying congratulations on being nominated as the A&R of the Year at the MPGs. It was surreal, because I couldn't work out, like, I'd been nominated before, and you kind of yeah. get something like that, and you think, I wonder why? Because it's, you look at all the stuff you've done, and there was one year where I had done a, like, made, been involved in, yeah. like, a shitload of records. And that year I thought, oh, I probably got a shot, you know. But I think in that period, that um, that because it's very you know it's very um, it's time specific. Mm. So in that period that I got nominated for last year, it was um, I looked at everything and I thought I was I was in a lot of studios doing a lot of things, but I'm not sure what got released and it was a particularly I mean nobody's fault, but whoever organises it didn't alert me till very late in the game. And it was, you know, they like you to get um, um, like a showreel. No, not a showreel. Pause. <laughs> what I think of the word. <laughs> um, they like you to get. Um, they like you to get your mates to write nice things about you. Oh yeah. I yeah. can't. I can't say the word. And um, I know what it is. It's a. Uh, uh, I can't think of it either. Anyway. It just seems inappropriate. Right. To go, hi, Ethan. Um, can you tell? Can you tell the MPGs how great I am? Yeah, it yeah, just yeah. doesn't sort of. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can't quite describe why it doesn't work. It's not a very English thing, that to sort of. But it's not even sort of that. It's just, I don't know. Either the music speaks for itself, or it doesn't. Who did you? Who did you? Did it who, did you who did you? Who did you Well, I didn't that year because oh, there wasn't didn't. time. All oh, right. But I'd done a load the year before. And when I looked at it, I thought, it's all the same people. Mm. Do I have to go back and ask Bob Ludwig again? Or Laura again? Yeah. Or, you know, it's like, it was a very similar list. Testimony. Testimony, that's mm. right. And so I phoned up the woman that was um, the point person organising it. I said, look, I've got like 10, you know, it was, it was like very short notice, you know, it's just it wasn't great in terms of phoning people up and getting them to do all this I said the I said use the ones from last year because they'll say the same you know what I mean it's the yeah. same thing and then I just kind of forgot about it and then they give you you get various clues like Sony I think as a the um the MPG give you a ticket. I don't think you even get two. You might get two. I think you get a ticket. You get what? You get one. You get one ticket. Yeah. As a nomin as a nominated person. So I didn't think anything more about it. And as I'd been the bridesmaid twice, uh, and also I don't fit into that world really because I'm too um, 
don't have a category. Right. Uh, I don't do this sort of music or sure. that sort of music. I do kind of anything. But I, you know, take a fancy to that day. And it, it was... Um, and then I was talking to somebody in Sony, um, even the Sony party department, tickets and parties, and they were like, no, no one's very interested in this. But in, a, in, a, in so many words. Yeah. And then I bumped into Ollie Hodge, who was also nominated over in Columbia. And he said, oh, Sony are taking a table. I said, well, then one of us has won. I said, you're young, you've got many years ahead of you, kind of taking, you know what I mean? <laughs> so let's hope it's me. Because <laughs> I haven't got many years ahead of me. No, I, I, we, we were, Urchin was nominated. We were nominated twice. Urchin Studios was nominated. And when I found out, I nearly like spat my coffee out. I couldn't believe it, that Little Old Us was against, I think it was um, Strong Room and Air. Air quite deservingly won it. Um, and then Dan was- Same owners. Yeah, I know, I know, so they had to, uh, the guy even said that, he said, oh, I had a, you know, 66% chance of making this speech. Tonight. That's right, he did. Anyway, they um, both studios. What's also interesting is, I think we all got nominated because of Laura. I know that, like, that seemed to be Dan, when I, when I looked Dan at was nominated for, so Dan Cox, yeah. who's the engineer who, who mixed, we've actually mixed the Laura record together, but it, it was more, for the record, I can say it was more him than me. Uh, yeah, he, he got nominated um, for short movie. So, um, I, but I couldn't. Anyway, it was the year. I've, you know, we're warming up. This so I'm, me, I'm meandering a bit. Fundamentally, I thought this is the year that I've had the least records out. <laughs> so I've got the least. You know, I bought the least number of bets on. Yeah. But you know, lo and behold. Well, anyway, c congratulations. Anyway. Um, I'm not sure about awards, to be honest with you. I mean, I can, I think I'm quite. I have a bit of a duality about them in that I can see that, you know, at you, you know when you watch the Brits at your most cynical, you say, well, this is just an industry adding value onto. But I think their, that's, onto I their, think that's onto, very. I think that's very pragmatic. Onto their product. but there are times. I do think. I do think the MPGs are. I think there's a few people. But because generally the people that get nominated for the MPGs are the more you know behind the scenes sort of music people, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of the MPGs. And, uh, no, I'm a fan as, of the MPGs. Don't, don't, uh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I'm talking about awards in general. Yeah, I, but I, I also can see that they're, you know. I don't know. Someone these days, someone be you know the idea there's an organisation fighting the producer and the engineer's corner is no bad thing. No bad thing, absolutely. At all. No, no, no. I would never. Uh, I think they're a, um, a worthwhile and worthy organisation. Mm. I'm just talking about awards in general. I get the Brit Awards. It's just a, It's just um, at a certain stage in a record's life, it's an opportunity to whop in some marketing money and have another run at it. <laughs> yeah, What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? It's just business. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a problem. But uh, but uh, but, uh, but, uh, but I think that like it, it is. I mean like. For example, when when Laura won, which which surprised you know I can I can quite happily say surprised everyone, including her. No, no, her more than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. And I said to her, I said to her that night, the uh, Neil Young night. Right. I said a photograph of your face, 
is something that I would have treasured. But sadly, I was so shocked I forgot to take a picture of you. Yeah. But you were standing like in that is Madison Lee here yet position <laughs> with it in your hands. Uh, yeah. And the look of the look of the the mixed emotions. I just thought, oh, photograph of this. But I just thought another sort of inappropriate thing to do to whip out your phone and go, can I have a picture of you looking really confused, Laura? <laughs> I heard that it normally gets leaked to the artists like t between 12 and 24 hours before. And it doesn't get they... leaked, huh? No, no, I mean, yeah. yeah. Or me. Or you. Yeah, and no one knew. So, um, so, but I mean, that that did make, that did raise a lot of awareness of like, <laughs> of who she, you know, of who she is and, and kind of what she does and stuff. Hmm. But anyway, so, Chris, do we, yeah, ask questions. I'm gonna ask I'll just ramble. I wanted to start with that. So I've done two, been involved in two records with with you, and um, I th the reason I wanted what, what I wanted to talk to you about first is that I think as, as an A and R guy, you're very very sensitive to the process of music studios and making music. Um, there's that thing where usually you know you're, when you're making a record that there you know the A&R guy comes around or, or and he's usually like the first guy to like listen to it and that's a very sort of sensitive time in the making of a record because you're like the first one kind of outside the sort of bubble of the creative you know the people that are making the music to actually hear what's kind of going down and um, both times that's that's happened you've been incredibly insightful into the mood of the studio and you just said the right things you didn't I'm not saying you, you sort of blew smoke up everyone's ass but the the comments that you made were very constructive um, you did have things to say and, and I just thought have you always been sort of sensitive to to, to that honest answer I don't know right um, or aware of it, at least. But I've been aware of it. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it is intuitive and instinctive. Mm -hmm. The first mm -hmm. time I ever went into a recording studio, I had um, befriended at a gig that I think I may, have, may or may not have been running. So it's a long time ago. Can I just to say, for people that are listening, how long have you been... An A and R guy. Um, I first signed my first band in 1977. Right. Who were they? Generation X. Oh really? Oh, okay. I couldn't get anyone interested in the Clash or the Sex Pistols, and it was a bizarre time. I was an A and R scout at Chrysalis Records, and you were really, you didn't really have much of a say in what was ultimately signed. Your job was to bring to the people that didn't go out every night to the 100 Club, the Marquee Club, the Hope and Anchor of the Nashville and various other pubs around North and South London, um, what was going on? Just an accurate representation of what bands were out there, which ones weren't shit and which ones were worth signing, which one might have already written some hits. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that what you sign it's a weird picture because you would have introduced a lot of stuff that you would have personally wanted to sign 
but the people that you were working for were probably had more commercial nous than you did as to what they could or knew what their label could sell mm -hmm. and a sense of what their label were capable of and quite often you were um, in a situation where you thought wow I wonder why they don't get this this is like so obvious I mean, an example of a band that I introduced to Chris sort of roughly at the same time was Squeeze right which I thought was a bit of a no-brainer. Had, had they written like? Uh, oh no, they were. They were yeah, yeah. There were a couple of those songs were in the set already. Right. But you know, Glenn's such a great guitarist and such a great singer, and Chris is such a great lyricist, and they had. It just seemed pretty damn obvious. Right. And so Chris's didn't didn't go for them. Well, it's an early lesson, in. Um, um, everybody being subjective however objective they're trying to be but a lot of people it's just their taste mm. um, I'm not really answering your question I've gone off at the tangent no, it's, 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 it's okay yeah then okay so let's backtrack this is I'm answering your question sure, now. Sure. so I meet Roy Harper and I can't remember how it happened but I get invited He's recording. He's recording an album that he's recording Stormcock at Abbey Road, and I get invited along. At this point, our relationship has got much to do with talking about cricket and football and the history of the world, mm. and smoking some very weak Moroccan hash. And um, the if I you know, there's something about the studio. You, you're walking in on something. There was a guy at the controls, who I later learned is John Leckie. There's a guy with glasses on with long hair who seems to be running the session. That's Peter Jenner. Uh, and uh, the atmosphere I walk into is not immediately easy to read. Mm -hmm. So my instinct is to sit quietly at the back. And this is where it starts. Right, but, but, but like even, how to behave in the studio. But, but even that, so many people, like be it, be it not even be it, be it someone's boyfriend or what, like whatever, can like come in, read the read the situation wrongly, and just say three words that piss everyone off. But I think and you're, knock it, and it's a nightmare. But you're just all you're doing. It's like anything. It's like arriving at a party and thinking. Violence is about to erupt here. <laughs> uh, or walking into a pub you've never been in before yeah. and thinking, hmm, it's eight o'clock, the public bar's empty, and there are three blokes with tattoos and scars standing at the bar. <laughs> I think turn around and leave is the best option. It's the same radar. Yeah, it is. You're right. It it's is. the same radar. So it's just your radar for situations mm. for anything, you know, as a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I am the kid where people went, wow, man, like five minutes after you left, you know, there was like blood on the floor. Right? This guy came in. And I went, really? Like five minutes after I left? Yeah, man. And it's that. But I, I, I've been in situations where, with, where, where label people have come in and literally in two, in two minutes ruined a week's worth of work, undermined the confidence of an artist. It's a, it's a fucking nut, like just literally come in and like, like with a, like a sort of, metaphorical baseball bat onto a house of cards and uh, that's exactly when you're walking in the room for the first time 
you have, you know, for any session, however well you know everybody, right, you're, um, it's the first time that they've put up with you, mm. then you, I don't, I was, I've talked, I've talked about this with somebody recently about, um, the just knowing if something's not good, if you've worked with somebody for a long time and you know them really well and it has gone off at a tangent mm. and it's not it's not that it's rubbish, it's just not happening. Mm. Or it's not you know, it's just not coalescing, there's something missing. And quite often I'll sit there, listen to it, and without being dishonest, defer delivering that news for reasons of atmosphere. Mm. Right? So it's, and I don't know, it's become so second nature. Yeah. You walk into the room, you haven't seen people for a while, mm -hmm. you kind of weigh everything up, sit there, you're played some music. It's like you've got to be pretty stupid not to realise that people have put their heart and soul into doing this. Right? Mm. And not, you don't always get it right just because you put your heart and soul into it. Uh, just because you went in with all the of best course, of intentions of doesn't always produce the greatest result. But you've got to be sensitive to the fact that that's what, you know, that no one's set out to make a shit record. <laughs> that's what you've got to be sensitive to. And if it's not quite happening, you then have to weigh up the situation you're in and to how you deliver that news what you say, how you say it, mm -hmm. but one of the reasons I keep hesitating is I don't think it's any longer a conscious process for me. Yeah, no, no, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, you, you are, you are very, you're a, like you're a, you're a natural in the but studio. Then, well, natural <laughs> is what I was, what you, what people I, start to look natural. Let's just correct on natural. You start to look natural when you've done it so often. Yeah. It looks seamless. Mm because you've had so much more practice than anybody else. Mm -hmm. But there isn't anyone as old as you. So no one younger than you can see the joints. <laughs> That's uh, true, but yeah. it's largely on the job training. Of course. Uh, based on, so if you've got the sort of, um, if you've got the basic instinct in the first place, mm -hmm. and then you just learn by practice and making mistakes, do you feel you getting it right, making mistakes, you until... Feel, so you have, you, have, you have got it wrong a few times. You've, you've just, oh shit, I've just, put my foot in it or said the wrong thing or no my instinct is if I think if I've got any doubt at all I shut the fuck up so going back to if something's not happening do you feel like sometime in some situations you'll go yeah I should I should act they can take this I should actually say something yeah, yeah no I, I literally do if somebody's if I know people really really well I don't know. The expression I use is like you can tell if the door's open or not most of the time. Uh, I mean, I've had situations where I've told people, like other people on the session, to like do not criticise this until like while it's while it's big, while it's growing, yeah. shut up. Yeah. You know, wait till it's finished because uh, you're just you, you're just basically blow it up on its way to wherever it's going and I've seen people completely lose their confidence mm -hmm. as a result of what was probably well-intentioned mm -hmm. input. I 
criticism. Yeah, yeah. I've seen like whole sessions destroyed mm. by it. Um, even with people that were attempting to be kind of you know give caring feedback, mm. not people being cunts. You know, mm. people actually. Yeah. It still it has the same effect. Mm, sure. Did you ever at any point have you ever wanted to go into production? I think you'd make an excellent producer because because I think the only difference between what you're saying between A and R and production, in essence, is that when stuff's not happening as a producer, you have to prov you have to provide all the same tact and depth of movement, but you have to say something. You can't not say something. Uh, yeah, well, that's and, and that's very true. And that and and basically, you know, production uh, at its most basic level is is taste is good taste and just being able to read situations and get around, get the best out of everyone. Right. The I get to a point where I meet people who are so I'm a social secretary at a college with a guy called Paul Conroy who went on to run Virgin and. You book bands, and you know their agent turns up, their manager turned up. We booked this band called Caravan, and their producer turned up. And in that gap where you're fucking around A levels, am I going to university? He got me an interview with a guy called Hugh Mendel at Decca, and they actually ran a producers training college at the old. Not sorry, it wasn't a producers training college. They kind of took on people who weren't recording engineers to see if they would become record producers and they stuffed them into the Decca studios in West Hampstead near the old Clues clique and um, anyway I met these two guys I met David Hitchcock who seemed to do the sort of uh, alternative progressive rock bands and a guy called Neil Slaven who did the sort of blues stuff who did on Keith Hartley or you know and they're both very nice guys and both considering that we were just kids very um, uh, generous with information. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dave Hitchcock, who's a thoroughly nice bloke, got me this interview. And I went along, and you could sort of tell straight away that I was a favour. It was a favour interview. Right. And the guy I'm being interviewed by is from the world of Tommy Steele and Winifred Atwell. It's from that sort of 50s right. variety. Yeah, yeah. He's not really... We're not from the same planet. Yeah. It's, become, it's about to become apparent. Yeah. Uh, he's talking about A&R. And we talk a bit about... And my only, his, my only knowledge of studios is this sort of stoned visits to Abbey Road to see Roy. Mm. Um, it's early. You know, I'm still... I'm in that... Um, I'm still a student... And the, he asked me if I've seen anything that I would sign. Now, this is the closest I've come to being taken on by anybody to be trained as a record producer. Yeah. And I went, yeah, I saw this fantastic band at Friars Aylesbury. So a load of us went down. Oh, I was at Leicester. I was at Leicester University. A load of us went down from Leicester for it. And he went, who was that? I went, David Bowie. You know, Ziggy Stitz, Dina, and the spiders from Mars. We saw them at Friars. I said, it's the best thing. And he just went, darling, darling. <laughs> we dropped David Bowie. That was the end of that. That was like the end of it. Really? Yeah, darling, we dropped David Bowie. So, 
then there's this stage with Peter Jenner, and I think this is what I think. I think at the age I was, with the um, uh, what's the word issues that I had with the world at the time, lack of confidence, <clears throat> and also everyone I met who was doing it was not a folk guitarist. They'd been to the Guildhall School of Music, mm. or they studied composition, or they'd been a recording engineer since they were 14, and they were now 24, and had just been given a shot. Yeah. So I seem to arrive at a point where you're either Roy Thomas Baker, or you're Chris Thomas. You know, Chris is a very, most of what I know starts with conversations with John Leckie and Peter Jenner and then that's picked up by the next people I meet who are Chris Thomas and Bill Price and the most patient they're all very patient and generous with information and then through Chris and Bill mm -hmm. next door I meet Mutt Langer and Tim Freeze Green <laughs> at Wessex Studios and they're all quite happy to tell somebody that goes why did you turn that grey one on you know with the big black knobs yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. They're all quite happy to yeah, sort of yeah, go. Yeah. Like, what does that do? One of them says Fairchild. What does that do? <laughs> and you just start picking it yeah. up. That's true. It's something every every decent producer I've worked with, and I have a very inquiring mind, and I'm always on their case about like what what, what are you doing? And they're all very happy to go. Oh, this is just a, hmm. it's not some secret, you know. Because because the thing is, is that like, you know, first time the first time I worked with Ethan. I was on his case, like, mm. oh, you, you know, and just because he'd showed me how to, to to record and EQ a guitar doesn't mean I can get it to sound like him. No, but, they, but Ethan's fantastic because he's like a time traveller. Ethan, younger than me, knows the same things as those guys older than me knew. Mm. No, so he knows. He's like he spans a greater period mm. than anyone I know. Mm. So he's he's doing things that people have forgotten about. Mm. Was the first time you worked with him with Ethan John with with Laura? Uh, I think it was. I did Laura, Neil Finn, which became Crowded House, and Joe Cocker with Ethan. We had a real run. I met him in Los Angeles. I'd met him very briefly. Because I was, I worked at A and M uh, in England when Ethan probably started. I think Glenn, Glenn, and Jerry Moss were very friendly, and Ethan started. Ethan did some sessions for his dad. There's a fan, if you could ever find it, there's a fantastic uh, Emmy Lou Harris tribute with sort of Chrissy Hind mm. singing. I mean, the fact the Chrissy Hine track, I can't which I've got the melody in my head and I can't remember the title. But it's a it was done for Rondor music and as a sort of tribute to Emmy Lou Harris and it's fantastic. And Ethan's engineering on some of it with Glyn with Glyn. And I meet Ethan without knowing I'm meeting Ethan at A and M because I'm in and out of the studio. But this is a period of my life where I'm as psychedelic as it's possible to be and still get to work on time and be breathing. <laughs> so, when, uh, was, when was this? 85 to 90. Mm. I mean, if I was answering questions on a quiz show 
about my life, 1985 to 1990, I'd probably have to phone a friend <laughs> to check out. You know, like Bob Dylan in uh, Chronicles. Yeah. There are bits where he clearly called somebody that was there to find out what really happened. <laughs> so it's that kind of... It was an interesting time. It sounds great. But... So, 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 I, I, then, I, then, I, so what was what was happening at that time? Musically, for you, what kind of stuff were you were you involved in? Ah, it was an, it was a time when there was uh, the world of pop and let's call it pop and rock, <laughs> right? Just so we sound like our fathers. <laughs> um, the two worlds hadn't merged, so when I came into the music business, mm-hmm. it was perfectly plausible to work for a label, Island or Chrysalis would have been the equivalent of, not quite, but ploughing an independent furrow. Though they're not Rough Trade or Domino or Billy Union or XL, or, you know what I mean, they are the same. But maybe Beggar's Banquet, is, you know, before it, before it um, at a certain point, mm-hmm. it's a sort of bridge label. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm working for Chrysalis at a period where we don't think of ourselves as competing with the majors. We're in a different world. And the label is born out of artists who couldn't get major label deals because they didn't conform to the you know commercial norms of the day. So the world I grew up in, in the studio world and as an A&R person, it's quite separate. You have an understanding of how pop music keeps the lights on and petrol in the salesman's cars but ultimately you're rather hoping you're going to bump into you know Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles Armour Ertigan's advice you know if anyone asked Armour Ertigan you know what to do you say hope you bump into a genius and the genius makes you look good the genius makes you look smart. So, which I've heard variations on that from various successful Americans <laughs> over the years have said something very similar. You know, and just like take all the reflected success <laughs> you can, you know, without necessarily doing very much. Yeah. But that. Um, so, which world were you, were you in, pop or rock? I was in the rock world very much. When, what, so but what, but by rock, yeah, I mean what, what everything you from soft. You know, from the soft machine through, you know, I mean, by university age, we were listening to all the sort of Can and Holger Zuke stuff, the sort of out there left field folk like Roy Harper, Mm -hmm. all the sort of 60s, like the whole Buffalo Springfield Jefferson Airplane world, Mm -hmm. and probably things like the Yardbirds and Free and the Who, and we're not really into, you know, and that like post Led Zeppelin it all goes a bit quiet if you're into rock because we go into a world of um, heavy metal well and part of there's punk there oh, there's a gap there's a gap people there's a gap where there's pub rock right and a sort of um, slightly cabaret metal but, but Led, Ze- and, and Led the, Zeppelin and punk overlapped no their careers overlapped yeah but in terms of when they pitch up if you're, if you're standing where I'm standing as a sort of A&R talent scout, right? Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, you're storm chasing. 
Right, yeah. Like, you know, you're where the tide crashes on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, you see things evolve, and you can put quite specific times on them. Mm-hmm. At the time that I was going to see bands like Dr. Feelgood and Ducks Deluxe, uh, there was a band called Rugulator, who had a fantastic guitarist whose name I can't remember. I used to do a cover of Betty Wright's Clean Up Woman, and he had that, he could play. He was a sort of nerdy looking white guy that played like Wah Wah Watson, you know, played with Bobby Womack. Mm-hmm. And that was, he was American. And his, and at the same time, there was a band, you know, you'd bump into people that were going to turn up in punk bands, like, you'd go to gigs. I was working with a guy called Philip Rambo, who was in, who's part of, um, I met Philip at Chrysalis, the Winkies, Eno and the Winkies. Right, so bar a collapsed lung, Eno was going to tour with this band, the Winkies. And he ends up, anyway, the Winkies end up doing an album for Chrysalis as I get to Chrysalis. Um, and I start wondering about, you know, Philip becomes somebody who comes to all the gigs with us. And we go to a gig and we bump into Mick Jones, who's at this point trying to put a band together with his mate. Right. Tony James, who's, who ends up in Generation X, and there are various people dotted about who haven't. It hasn't all coalesced right. yet. Okay, yeah, yeah. And we're and the two worlds. As a talent scout, you go around the North London pubs in a world of Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera, and um, and then you come back into Central London, and you go in the Marquee Club, and there's a sort of rock being played that very British and it's a sort of short break between Led Zeppelin and Iron Maiden and Def Leppard right, right. so this is like mid 70s early 70s early oh okay 72 73 74 and yeah you are getting into the mid 70s so by now Iron Maiden when did Iron Maiden sign to EMI late see what's interesting all this stuff overlaps yeah Punk, I, cause see Maiden. at the same time this is where it's interesting at the same time you could go out I won't do this in too much detail because it's okay. all we'll talk about but you could go out in a week and on, and on the same time plane see Dire Straits Squeeze The Damned The Sex Pistols The Clash and some rock bands whose names we've forgotten right. so that we don't upset anybody who were fucking dreadful <laughs> And what most of them had in common is they weren't very good live. Right. And this is the beginning of the label, you know, the, the studio trickery is getting good enough <laughs> to make a record that if you practice enough, you might sound like in three tours' time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, because the, we're no longer just sticking mics around you and going, play. Yeah. Oh, hang on, that bass sounds a bit weird. Move that microphone. Yeah, it yeah. um, We've now got harmonizers and all sorts of trickery. And people have got very good at editing tape so mm. that out-of-time drummers can be put back in time by very, very patient engineers with a razor blade. Mm. And, you know, it's changing very rapidly. And people, there are people sort of on the cutting edge of this, engineers. I mean, I, we mentioned Roy Thomas Baker earlier. There are people that are kind of, you know, there are some boffins in the engineer department making in the same way that George Martin you know to the point where the guys down you know, the guys in the white coats in the basement 
came up with uh, automatic double tracking at Abbey Road, for example. Mm-hmm. Was it Ken? Was it Ken Townsend who invented it? But that was very much someone's imagination demanded a box that did something that you couldn't do yet. Right, right, right. So that was accelerating. We haven't quite got to the point yet where you can actually manu- you know, you can actually make you can get a good session singer in and wrap somebody around them with melodyne who can't sing at all and call that a pop act. We haven't quite got to that point yet. Yeah. But it's coming. Yeah. And the way that things are presented historically by journalists isn't always accurate. It's much more... I mean, it makes it much easier to digest the idea that there was heavy metal and progressive rock and then there was punk. The reality was it was all sort of stirred in together Mm. and things die out and things grow, but certain things never go away. And one of the things as an A&R person I learnt very early on is never to write anything off. Anything. If somebody's talented, the fact that they're out of time, not commercial this week, born in the wrong year, don't take any of that too seriously. Mm. If they're good, keep an eye on it. Mm. Don't necessarily sign it that week, but come back and have another look in three months' time. Mm. Things move very quickly, and you find yourself. I was at EMI in the AR department, and we saw U2 very, very early on. And the powers that be, it was chaotic times. The powers that be just couldn't get their heads around the idea of signing a band that weren't developed for the deal that Paul McGuinness was asking for. And when I look back on it, that's what it came down to. Right. Though, for reasons I can never understand, you feel, and I used to do this a lot, you like, you take, you know, you you take a bullet for these fucking people you work for. You're the one that gets, I mean, I got sent downstairs once or twice by people that were paying me to, to hand out the bad news to artists that I really wanted to sign. Mm-hmm. And the the um, anyway, in, in what didn't feel like a particularly auspicious time, the A&R department I worked in, um, one of the guys is dead now. So the two guys that bought in Iron Maiden, one's no longer in the music business. I've lost touch with him. I don't know what he's doing. And the other guy died. You know, I think he he um, he'd like to drink a bit too much. That is still something. That catalogue. That, I mean, that band are flying around the world in 747 touring, mm. still. Their own 747. Their own 747, <laughs> touring, still. And have made a gazillion pounds for <laughs> EMI. Yeah. At the time, the guy that ran EMI couldn't wait to run us out of there. Really? It was a, it, the feeling of, we've seen blokes like you before. We've had loads of A&R people through here. You're all fucking chances. You know what I mean? And I'm like, you know, so I'm sitting in the pub. My A&R at the time is I'm sitting in the pub getting drunk with wire. So I really, th- you know, I thought they're great blokes. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it wasn't really a and I mean, Mike Thorne was there, had assigned them and was their producer. I think I just kept them entertained in the pub when Mike wasn't around. Just sort of A&R. <laughs> um, yeah. I signed the Gang of Four because I thought they were fantastic. 
live. Okay. Going back, do you have something to do with Maiden then? No, I just happen to work in it. It's just, sorry. What I'm trying to explain is while everyone thinks there is only punk going on. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. The other band that came along at this time that we'd signed Maiden, and I I can't remember what happened, but there was a reason because the guy that was like there was within the EMI A&R department in 1977 there was a guy who was really on top of everything rock and he'd also stumbled over Def Leppard they put an EP out themselves up in Sheffield and they wouldn't sign to EMI because they already had Iron Maiden that might be a dream or it might be a memory who knows but two years later I, I end up working with Def Leppard now Sat in an A&R meeting in 1980. Uh, you've been parachuted in. The only reason, um, I think, the, the the way heads of A&R got picked back then is in a meeting you were plausible. You smelt least of booze. You seemed the least stoned. You were probably a bit more neatly dressed than the others. You're the head of A&R. I don't think there was any other reason for it. So it was it was like, oh, you got a lottery ticket. And all, all being the head of NR really meant was that you had less free time, you had to sign people's expenses knowing that most of it was bollocks, and you had to deal with people lying to you about how they'd offered a job somewhere else who were after a BMW. But other than that, very little to do with music. Right, right. An early lesson. Okay. But the Def Leppard came along as a, as a proposition, whilst none of that sort of, you know, that sort of music had been, you know, the, the enemy had attempted to laugh that sort of music off, you know, off, off anyone's radar. Yeah. The, in America at the same time, that sort of music was, was um, very, very popular. And we were under a lot of pressure. Um, there's a point coming at the end of this. that We were under a lot of pressure. Phonogram, the company, had lost a lot of money and had a bad run in, in uh, domestic A&R. And there was a lot of pressure to find something already signed and try and turn it around reasonably quickly in order to create some budget to sign some new stuff with. So in a pragmatic way, you would look at the roster and is there anything here that they've undercooked, haven't got the best out of, Mm -hmm. could have sold more? Mm -hmm. Because that then buys you the time to wander the world looking for Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles. And Def Leppard, it's just all those things, like you'd met Mark Langer in a studio and had a conversation with him. You sort of, I don't know about you, but if I can listen to music that I'm not particularly moved by and identify what's good about it. So at the time, I don't know, there were some very technical, I remember listening to ACDC Back in Black, Foreigner 4, which I didn't like, but I thought someone's done a brilliant job here. Mm. You know, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, and the one that I really was, the, a record that fascinated me that came out in the late 70s was Boston. And there's a track on it called More Than a Feeling, More than a feeling. which is kind of similar course to Smells Like Teens. It's like, Smells Like Teen Spirit is the minor key version of that song. <laughs> yeah. And there's just, the whole, the production is so extraordinary. Mm. Um, and I think, I, I think there's a part of it that's nerdy enough to be interested in all that just for its own sake. Right. Even if you end up taking what you've learnt from it 
and using it in a completely different setting. Sure. That's got you know, so there's no musical connection. So the son the sonics are fascinating, whether they're in music you love or not. Okay, I can I can totally dig on that. And something that was interesting about that hair metal. Let's call it hair metal. That went through. I I think grunge probably was the final nail in the coffin of, but but all of those bands like Def Leppard the hair metal lot even Guns N' Roses when they first came out to a point was popular for like like 15 years from like the 70s right until like the late 80s I guess but all those bands Extreme was like that that last most of those bands can go on the road still yeah and fill bigger venues yeah than the pop artists of the last 15 years why is that? it's because it was them Mm. Because it, at the at the bottom of it is something real, right? I mean, forget whether you like it or not, or whether it um, just try to be. You know, if you try and look at it objectively, the guy, the first guy I worked with, Tony Stratton Smith, I remember saying to me, he said, "If you go and see a band, Chris, mm. that are popular, mm-hmm. unsigned, mm-hmm. and you just don't like it." Uh, rather than leave, stand at the back and look at the audience. Therefore, you've touched on something very interesting. Therefore, as an A&R guy, a record, a record guy, do you feel that there's a correlation between something's, a band or an artist's integrity and their commercial appeal? Mm. Their long-term commercial appeal? You're saying that those no, I think, bands I think, were popular because it was they, they were kind of honest. Well, no, for, yeah, but it was for their audience. This is where it's very um, running off your own taste as an A and R man is dangerous. It'll only serve you for so long. Right. You've kind of got to have a picture of like you can't be snobbish about. If you're going to do A and R for a major record label, and they're having a tough time, and you've signed, you know, you've it's all about you know survival is a big part of this, and you. Between, you know, in the department, you have four or five new artists that you've signed that you all love, but for whatever reason, they're not connecting commercially. Uh, if you've been um, short-sighted enough to neglect something less fashionable and very popular that's already signed, you're basically signing your own death warrant. I mean, this comes back to the idea that staying in the game until the timing's right for that great artist you think you've signed. It's just very important to keep it rolling. Right. Because the idea that you know what's happening or you know what's coming, I mean, people all pretend, you know. I listen to people, it's like, it's like all those stupid futurologists that wrote books about what was going to happen on the internet, like The Long Tail. Right. I mean, The Long Tail's a comedy book, right? It never happened. Oh, right, okay. But there are a lot of people making a living out of telling people who don't know, you know, there's there's a sort of you know there are a lot of medicine men, yes, operating in the internet world, trying to give people uh, a sense of certainty in all this chaos. Most of them are bluffing or well-meaningly misreading the data, or you know. But I think it's it's wise to um, just assume you don't know. Mm. what's going to happen next and just keep that idea that if something's got an audience and 
they're not necessarily gigantically commercially successful you've just got to go to a show I went to a Def Leppard show in Wolverhampton mm-hmm. when Peter Mensch and uh, Cliff Bernstein first took over their management oh they were on cue they just had become shortly before I got involved they'd just gone to um, Cliff and Peter Okay. they were managed originally by a guy what was his name they were managed by a guy who had a record shop in Sheffield who'd helped them put out that first EP, which is where Bludgeon Rafola comes from. That's the label. I think that's... If I remember that... I am, a, I am at an age now where some of my memories might have been things so, I dreamt. So, let, let, me, so, let me ask you this. If, if you're working with a band, an act, you're not necessarily... It's not necessarily your thing, but you're like, they're massive or they're big, they have an audience. Is that... Do you play that differently in the studio? Because if, if no, no, it's all the same. Really, okay, yeah, it's all the same. And a lot of those people that are perceived, well, that's a really obvious example. Of Robbie Williams. I was A and R in World Party, right? Who I'd inherited because Nigel Grange had left. But it's my kind of music, mm-hmm. and I think I met Guy Chambers. I think he'd already left. I think him and Carl had already separated. I met Guy at a birthday party and that, those evenings where you end up in the kitchen talking to somebody you've never met before for an hour, something was going on. Anyway, I ended up A&R and Carl um, through um, yeah, quite difficult times, but I'm through a series of bizarre coincidences that have nothing to do with music. I end up round at Robbie Williams' flat in Maida Vale, mm. talking to him. He's left take that, which is not, which is quite off to the right of what I'm doing at the time. I'm probably still a little bit more idealistic than mm. I am now. And this is this is an important point. I liked him straight away as a person. As a person, right and he showed me some lyrics he'd written and I thought oh shit and he sang you know he was in, in that unselfconscious way yeah sang some random fragments of song that were quite you know oh that's a memorable hook shouldn't be the middle eight should probably be the core you know but yeah 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 that's interesting so you're and I said to him well I mean, I'm condensing something down that probably took three hours. But what I basically said to him, I said, look, in music business money, you're a top line and lyric. You know, you're a top line lyric writer. Like if you were a pop songwriter, that's what you'd be. And he looked at me in that sort of, that's not what I've been told. You know, <laughs> yeah. the band I used to be in. <laughs> that's not how that went. That wasn't now. a popular. <laughs> that wasn't a popular. That wasn't a popular idea. And. I can't remember which one ever said it, but the, he doesn't play, you know, he hasn't had the benefit of parents that had a piano, you know, he didn't have piano lessons from the age of seven, and he wasn't a guitar prodigy yeah. by accident. So he's got all these songs in his head, exercise book full, you know, with lyrics in them. And he also recites to me great lumps of Tupac and Biggie Smalls, which takes me slightly by yeah, surprise. Sure. Because this bloke that's been sacked from, or has left, take that, 
who I've only seen on some news footage, you know, looking yeah. like he's bang at it with yeah. Gallagher's at Glastonbury, <laughs> yeah. uh, with with a dyed blonde crop, with his hair out on, you know, his eyes out on stalks. I'm thinking, this bloke's really interesting. And uh, I don't see, and I've I, by this point reached a point where you're sort of you've opened it up so much because it's so hard to find people who are creative and they're going to stick at it. Mm. I have, I've actually got it somewhere in here for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you kind of start recognising them wherever they pop up. Mm. So if they pop up and they happen to be in something that The Guardian would give a five-star review to, all well and good. But I think I, I probably lived through a period of my life where I thought only in terms of those bands that get five-star reviews in the broadsheets, age 17 to 23. And then you start realising, I think also, going back to Phonogram, meeting Chris Thomas produced Elton John, and the idea that, that great artists that can be can present as light entertainers when they want to, which is a bit of an American thing. Didn't um, so, so get Gus Dargin for G3? Yeah, he so. did. But it starts to broaden out your idea of who's talented and what talent is. Mm-hmm. And going back to Robbie, sorry, did you put him together with Guy Chambers? Did you? God, that was a that was a that was a lucrative. Uh, <laughs> it's not, but it's not. It's not like you know, if we were in a, if we were doing a documentary or a television program. It would be like I'd be sat at my desk one day going, who can I get to produce what I know? It's not like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we Did you try him out with did, obviously different Well, no, what we did was we tried him out, or he he had his own ideas. Mm-hmm. His managers at the time, who weren't his managers that have seen him through the success. Mm-hmm. So when he came to EMI, he had different managers. He had his own ideas, very, very strong ideas. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why he, you know, he'd left take that, and he'd uh, already been in with Owen Morris, and done some stuff. The guy that did Oasis. Story, yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd already been in with Owen Morris down in Mono Valley or somewhere, and done some demos. He was already friendly with Aunt Gen, who is. Um, uh, I used to bump into when Chris Thomas was doing Pulp. It was a, seemed to be a friendly with all the Sheffield bands. Right. So he was around the studio when Chris was doing the first Pulp album he did, which wasn't but a tenth album. And he was friends with uh, the Long Pigs, mm-hmm. with Richard Hawley and Crispin Hunt. Anyway, so Robbie already had a little circuit of people and that he was attracted to. And at the extreme at EMI, was um, the guy who, uh, you know, it was a big deal for them. So the deal was done at chairman level. And uh, by a guy called J.F. Cessiel, Jean-Francois Cessiel. Mm-hmm. And he was French, very French, and saw it in poppier terms that Robbie would be a, I think he saw originally, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you're signing some somebody who's as an artist, as a solo artist, still developing. And we did a bit of frog kissing, which is quite a good way of finding out who people are. So you put them in with the hit writers of the day. Right. Doesn't work. Yeah. Put them in with the 
more interesting adults that have been in bands. And the turning point is, I thought about putting him in with Ian Brody. Now, it's only circumstantial. Quite often, timing's a big part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, he didn't hit it off with Ian. But that was the germ of an idea of forming a band called Robbie Williams. Right. And actually doing it quite traditionally. Mm-hmm. Because the what he clearly wasn't was somebody, like a lot of pop is done these days, who pops into the studio between doing some promo and going for a suit fitting mm. to do the vocal three times yeah. <laughs> and then somebody called Darren who you know who's, wants to be a record producer has to spend the rest of the day melodining <laughs> comping and melodining yeah, yeah, yeah. in that into a well known phrase or saying uh, in the hope that he'll be allowed to be a record producer one day he's, he's not that at all mm. and it became apparent as I got to know him that he was no different from any artist. He had a very specific idea. Did you have to fight for that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I nearly got sacked for it. Really? Well, I, you probably definitely would have got sacked if, if it hadn't have been the sort of amazing success that it, that it was. Well, no, but that's the only thing you're judged by. It's always been that case. I nearly got sacked at Phonogram because at one point I was hiding... I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand quid for the studio bills. <laughs> I'd been a bit dishonest about how much Def Leppard was costing to do, <laughs> but the second, not the, we did high and dry for a reasonable amount of money. Is this when they were, ma- this is when they were massive? No, no, they're not I massive really, yet. Really no, 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 no. They become massive after Pyromania. Did that have, pour, pour, that some pour, does it, it pour some sugar on me? That's later, that's hysteria. Okay. It's um, Rock of Ages and, um, we basically that's a whole other story that's to do with the beginnings of MTV um, there was a there was an international guy at Phonogram who had the foresight to make two expensive videos for a band that never have a hit I mean we used to get away with this shit so we made like with the guy you know with the guy who directed Queen videos we made these like, incredibly you know, high quality performance videos mm-hmm. of Photograph and Rock of Ages. Mm-hmm. And MTV's launching and it doesn't have a lot of content. Right, right. And we were just like... <laughs> we were just on repeat. <laughs> it's a bit of, you yeah. know, what's his name? Um, Malcolm Gladwell moment. Right. We're in the right... You're, you're in the right town on the right day with the right kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get a break. Yeah. Um, That's always amazed me. The thing I've learned in, in, in the music business is that they... You, you see every artist that I've worked with who's kind of got something out there you know and made some sort of impact there's just all of these stars aligning and you're at that moment where you see it this there's like the right management they've got this artist has like the right producer the right musicians and, and it just everything you just this line of stuff because you know and it can be very you know, obviously you must find it very frustrating when there's someone really good and it's not like it's up just for them. not like they've just got shitty management whatever there can be a million things um, yeah. and um, yeah oh, no, it's absolutely. really frustrating I've seen, I've seen loads of that and then you see then you see stuff that you're like I don't understand this at all and then just goes and becomes massive because again there's just there's no, just, no, but you can't right. this is the whole thing about the commercial end of music you can really if you if you start to think of it in musical terms, you can become really confused because whatever people want to do with their money for entertainment, 
mean, it might eat into some understanding of great music. Mm. And for certain, you know, there are people who are great who are also entertaining. Mm. You know, and there are great artists that have hit a commercial mainstream. I mean, the Beatles would be a fairly obvious one. Yeah. And there are, and, and it's the same, in, isn't it? The same would be the same in clothing or, sure. you know. I mean, more people buy McDonald's than buy brown rice and vegetables. You know, and it's clear what's better for you. I mean, I'm being a bit simplistic, but you get the drift of what I'm trying to say. And to, I don't worry about, I, I've never, like, as a kid, you know, watching Top of the Pops and, like, on would come, I don't know, Bucks, Fizz or Brotherhood of Man. And it's just so jaw-droppingly awful. But then you realise, actually, it's just, it's a business. You know, it's a living for them. Uh, there's an audience for it. You know, and it's very dangerous if you want to stay in this for a long time to be judgmental about anybody involved in music who's got an audience and is getting paid. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to, to be able to accept it's got nothing to do with you and it's not your aisle and it's not your taste, mm. but to belittle them. I've seen people in bands who are considered to be very, I wouldn't name anybody, but there's one person in particular who's, you know, so revered by um, um, the media. Uh, he's an appalling snob, you know, about anyone. You know, he's got almost that sort of, he's got a terrible, terrible attitude. And I don't know, I just don't see the point in being judgmental. It's mm. really, you know, it's like, it really is shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. To point out that, you know, um, I don't know, the, um, you know, something that's just like a one-off pop thing isn't very good. You know, it's self-evident that it's not very good. <laughs> but if you work at a record label and it's sold a lot, what it's doing is buying you time. Uh, so to find to find Stevie. So what I learned on the job uh, yeah. was like this awful piece of shit. You know, house record would appear. Uh, stuff that makes you know David Guetta sound like Shostakovich. <laughs> it's so appalling that would sell like four or five million copies across yeah. the world. Now, that buys you time mm. for the little genius who's not connecting. That buys that little genius a few more months in the game yeah, yeah. to come good or not. And that's the, trying to, the kind of bigger picture. It's a bit like, I mean, it doesn't happen anymore, but in Hollywood, I'm sure there were people that thought, it's cool, the Fantastic Four means I can make one more Vin Benders film. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. That's kind of, in a nutshell, that's how I think. It's like, if I'm, if I can push this Fantastic Four thing through, I guess everybody off my fucking back, yeah. uh, and Werner Herzog gets to make another film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, properly funded. Yeah. Like with a decent cinema photographer, you know, decent facilities, gets a shot at doing something decent. But and I guess... Because the, the, all the things that win big time long term um, have somebody really driven in the middle of it sure 
Um, sure. But but I, I guess it's nice you say that there because I think a lot of people would say, you say, oh, the fan Fantastic Four's done really well. You know, we can make another interesting documentary. Though some people in some of the studios might go, Fantastic Four's done really well. Let's make another Fantastic Four. No, but you do make another Fantastic Four. But, but at, least, at least you have the, you yeah. do have something in your head running in parallel to that. No, but you do it all. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like, um, I don't know. It's like having a picture of the cost of doing things and keeping people in the game. By sometimes saying, look, saying to the manager, you know, we might have to make the next record for less. You know, so that if it's not as successful as we wish it to be, mm. you don't get dropped. You know, you continue, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Because we're building towards something. Not everybody, you know, the, the idea that artists get signed and have three hits in the finance, same financial year as the advance goes onto the balance sheet, onto the P&L, yeah. is a dream yeah, that only finance people have. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be a beautiful world if yeah, that all yeah, happened, yeah. right? Because it would take a lot of pressure off. Sure. But in reality, talented people turn up in various stages of development and they turn up... I mean, you can tell someone's talented and they've got a shot. You can kind of tell that the songs are good I mean, you often see somebody and you think, they're not good live yet. They've got a fantastic voice. There are seven, eight brilliant songs here, but no banger. What do you do? Not sign it? Because it might take three years to come good. Mm -hmm. But what you can't do is give them a gazillion dollars. Because once you give somebody a big advance, the clock's ticking. Yeah. And the commercial edifice around you is just going, it's got the gun loaded. <laughs> for it to cross over a certain number and recoup, just shoot it, wherever stage it's at. Sure, sure. Because what happens to a lot of artists is they are um, developed, but financially recklessly, and they don't get to, you know, they don't get to the end of the cycle of development mm -hmm. because um, the process, you know, the, the process of them learning to be great or, or learning to make their great into something that manifested in a recording or whatever is um, isn't realised because everyone went into air studios to do demos yeah. and I've seen it I've seen it with a band recently and you're just like it's this night in 75 what the fuck is going but on even you went into such and such a studio to yeah. do and you didn't you didn't have any songs it still happens it's, it's, it's amazing does it still happen it, it was has, stupid I, in I, 1975. I've seen it, yeah. I've seen it. I learnt it, I think probably off Chris Thomas, who I learnt so much off. Uh, Chris would, I think it was probably the Pretenders. Because uh, Chris was very, you know, as I said, he was brilliant at giving you information. Mm. I remember Chris starting with the Pretenders and stopping, like doing three or four songs and stopping. He said, well, that's, they've only got four songs. I said they want me to, and I remember him saying they want me to do an album, but they've got to, if they could do it, they're eight songs. Right? Mm. So what have you? So I've sent them away yeah. to write more songs. Yeah, the guy had such a clear picture, yeah. and he did this a lot. This was his modus operandi. He said it's not ideal. I'd rather do whole albums with people, but if you've only got four songs, you've only got four songs. I said I could have recorded the other eight, but they were all crap. Yeah, yeah, you're just giving it a boob job. It's yeah, it's. it's so true. Yeah. And he would do, he'd quite often have three or four projects, so he'd be doing whatever his sort of long-term relationship was, whether it was Roxy Music or mm -hmm. um, 
at the same time he'd be working with young bands um he was, you know, he had that same thing. I think Rick Rubin has this reputation. Yeah, of saying, you know, the bottom line is, are the songs any good? Have you got enough songs to go into the studio? Mm. Because if you haven't, uh, it's an expensive way to come unstuck, and then all you're doing is shortening the period of time that the label or yeah, it's about money. People can only afford to go. I mean. In the 90s, I mean, bands could get to a million pounds unrecouped, and people were still betting. You know, people right, right. Would, put, would, would put another, you know, 100,000 pounds down. In these uncertain times, you know, where everyone's being herded over to Spotify to a 0.0000007 of a cent, there isn't the money. Yeah. And none of these people. Google, Apple, none of them put a penny into developing new artists. Mm. Uh, so the silly old major labels, who um, at least used to, you know, have a have have their hand on the distribution steering wheel, mm -hmm. no longer do. Mm -hmm. Someone invented the internet. Um, are still the only people that put substantial amounts of money into people that have never had any success, either artistically or commercially. Who might earn back the interest-free loan? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's amazing to me that people are going back to what I, what I was saying at the beginning about being people in the industry. Being you need to be engaged with the process, and it's amazing that this stuff still goes on. Where you know, bands go into expensive studios in the hope that if they just kind of throw some money at it and, and a nice desk, suddenly they'll they'll it's write they'll write a stinker. Yeah, I can it, think it, of it over the years. Bands that I've liked, that I've been to see, and I've wanted to sign, and then three weeks later be wandering through Metropolis to the mastering, you know, to go and see Tony Cousins, um, and walking past that band, you know, with a eight grand a track, four point producer, or drinking cappuccino. <laughs> uh, <laughs> going into a studio, not anymore, but you know, yeah, going into yeah. a studio that was probably 1200 quid a day, yeah, plus 500 quid for the engineer mm. and some outboard hiring, mm. thinking, and because you've done it for a long time, you're thinking, wow, that's I, I, I lost my nerve at 200,000 pounds an album. <laughs> There's some tour support in the deal, yeah, like some guaranteed tour support in this deal. And I'm looking at 250,000 quid mixed and mastered. So before the marketing people have made a video or spent a penny, the label are half a million pounds in, which means in old money that unless the first album sells a million copies, you look like a twat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like, it doesn't, you don't think it through like that. It's a, it's a sort of, so, it's like a light comes on so, and goes off. So something I wanted to ask you: the the music industry has obviously changed immeasurably in the, you know the, in since the seventies. Obviously, do you feel that the the nature of your job has sort of changed with that, or do you think I'm basically just doing the same thing? Everything around me has changed. Distribution has changed. The way in which you make music has changed. But do, do, do you do you feel that like the core of what you do? The core of what I do is identical. Right. I mean, everything's changed about, you know, 
pretty much everything's changed in terms of actually certain things haven't changed what's not changed how important people think it is to get a, to get their single on radio one that's like unchanging yeah in the world of marketing yeah like you sit in marketing meetings and the atmosphere drops to cold like if a, if a, you know, if a record's been out a few weeks and it's not got on the radio one playlist at any any point yeah I read as if that's the only way of introducing people to new music but do, why do you think I read a, an email uh, fairly recently uh, from 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 a, a kind of plugger guy and it it was what would happen if the artist didn't get on radio one and it made for really bleak reading it was just basically you're, you're fucked if you can't get so why do you think that's still why is it so it, important I walked still? in the door in 1970 my first paid employment is what 1972 and it was that true then why it's, is really one still so influential when we've got so many other ways of like it's not you know we now have the internet so you can discover music anywhere but the influence of Radio 1 is still almighty. I think it's... Part of it is... The... There's, not, there's, there's no simple answer. The world has sped up so much that certain things that are irrelevant are still spoken about as if they're truisms or... You know... It's like the... Um, Things move at such a pace now that things that are clearly no longer true are spoken about as if they're true. Mm -hmm. um, whether I don't know whether any of it matters. I mean, ultimately, the um, well, you're you're trying to make good records, and if they sell, brilliant. If we all get to keep our record deals, stay in a job, <laughs> continue to get paid, eat, uh, have a car to drive and somewhere to live. Uh, um, I don't think I ever had the stomach for making great art and being homeless. Right. Which I think some people do. Sure. And I, uh, I've always been a little bit bourgeois. I've always wanted to be a little bit you know, have some food in my tummy and somewhere warm to sleep. And, um, which is why I'm so, pr I think, so sort of ruthlessly pragmatic. Because mm. I think without that, I couldn't, I, mean, I couldn't, the, um, it's harder and harder to keep artists like Laura, you know, on a major label. Um, the, and I'm, you know, working with artists that um, that write. You know, there's a whole world now of people that I knew in the bands, you know, in their great bands, who are writing for um, in the extreme. They're writing for people who are just entertainers with nice voices. Mm. and quite often I mean there are plenty of examples of this in the last few years where 
and somebody like I don't know. I mean, this is I'll just pull these out of the air. You know, an artist like George Ezra or an artist like James Bay, mm -hmm. fifteen or twenty years ago, no one would have been overly concerned about the lack of a big hit um, until the second album. So you'd probably, I mean, I'm, this is broad generalising. Sure. Right? So you'd sign an artist like that, probably start over on the left, because that's probably where they, the door they'd come in. Yeah, sure. Like they wouldn't come in the door, Mark Pop. Like they'd come in from sure. the left, and your attraction to them would be they could play, they had nice voices, mm -hmm. they wrote really good songs. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are plenty of examples of artists in America, a bigger country. I mean, a country where you can make a living as a jazz musician. Mm. Because there are more towns to play in, sure. right? So the geography helps you, like the geography helps, you know, someone like Ryan Adams to have a career without having to have hit singles, because you know the 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 opportunities to earn money in other ways if you're planted inside a country that size. I mean that you know the economies of scale really help sure. being American or being based in America. Whereas in a small country, you've got to sort of, you're limited by the size of the place, even more so if you're European. And in a small, you know, there's a, there's a point at which you've got to kind of cross over into another country. And I've, over the years, this process has been sped up and you've now got people that were in the same position themselves. So the irony of Joel from Athlete helping George Ezra get that one banger that really pushes him through on his first album mm -hmm. it's just a sort of I don't know if it would translate into anybody else but if you've done it for a long time you know it's it's like somebody from the previous generation who was doing something a little bit off to the left and a bit more interesting who was given time by Parlophone to develop who got caught in the first you know there's a period where Artists that didn't have big pop hits could build up enough. You know, I mean, I'm, again, I'm, this is such generalising, but I have no, to I do it to make the point. I, I know, I you know, know like a band like Athlete with one hit single would sell three hundred thousand CDs, yeah, physical CDs, and tour. Uh, it's a paying job. Mm. At this point, they, they're earning a living. Huh? They're not making a fortune, but they're eating. They're staying in warm hotels. They have, you know what I mean? It's it's going somewhere. I mean, I'm not um, a luddite about any of this, but it's just a fact that the 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 head of that business was chopped off by the arrival of music you could get your hands on for nothing. Yeah. And as that music appeals to people that would probably be short of money, if I was a student and someone showed me how Napster worked. And I had a tenner to spend that week on yeah. food, cigarettes, sex, and music. <laughs> and music was suddenly free. So, yeah, of course. It's a, it's a, it's a Do you think that's why there's a, a lack of bands? Because if you have a, there's a, a ton of solo artists, because essentially, as solo artists, you only have to pay sort of one person. Whereas a band is five, four or five people. Suddenly, well, you've yeah, got to split everything. The, you budgeted in the early 90s. You couldn't really, uh, if you were, if you were signing a band, and they were going to give up their jobs, if they all had, if, assuming they had jobs, 
you probably had to give them sort of a minimum of 75,000 quid to feed and clothe and house four people for a year. Even under, you know, even in a sort of fairly shitty little house in the sort of, you know, the wastes of North London. Or worse, <laughs> South London. <laughs> and um, the... The, 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 there isn't the economy to support that anymore. But which, is surprised, which surprises me, though, working in the news is how quite a lot of labels that I've been involved in still love spending money. And as a producer, I can make records very cheaply. Mm. I really can. I could, you know, everyone I, can. We've got the technology to I know, but it's intelligent do, but to still, do that. They still want to kind of chuck money at it, at yeah. something. But it's intelligent to do that. Because you give, if you spend fifty thousand quid making the album rather than a hundred, you're keeping that artist in the game. Yeah. Uh, because for whatever reason, um, radio decides it's only playing urban music and dance music that month, mm. and the the week your record comes out, it just doesn't fit. Mm. There's like you know, you don't always arrive on the correct zeitgeisty wave, mm. however good you are. And to have the the money in reserve to sort of sit back and wait for the wave, yeah, 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 it's not a bad place to be. No. And if you've spunked two hundred fifty thousand quid, you know, recording in air and having Serban Ganem, you know, I mean, I'm not, not that, you know, having somebody really expensive mix album tracks, yeah, um, you're all you're really doing is reducing the number of shots. Yeah, that young artist is going to get. So it's kind of irresponsible. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. It's kind of irresponsible to do that. And, I mean, I get quite, you know... I mean, on a number of occasions, I've been beaten up. You know, I've inherited an artist that's already in financial trouble mm -hmm. to do a second album. Um, with and you, Sorry, mate, but you've only got 40 grand to make the album. And I do it... And without even blinking, they spend seventy-five thousand quid on the video for the first single. It's not a hit. Yeah. So it's not very well joined up. This business. No, I actually, I I've often done things where, you know, I've done things, particularly as a musician, you've kind of done things a favor, for a favour. You've done a gig and a rehearsal, and you're getting paid way under. But you like the music, and maybe you want to get involved. Mm. And there's, there's not the budget to do this. Yeah, okay. So then you do the gig, and like a stylist, or a team of stylists arrive. Uh, uh, you know, and those guys aren't cheap. And you're just like, oh, where, you know, where? <laughs> I don't understand the priorities well, here. Well, no, no. The, I've looked at what the hairdresser and makeup artist flying to a video shoot have paid. Yeah. Notice that the product manager is going to the shoot in the south of France. <laughs> And there's about, and I think, hang on a minute, there's the promotion, hang on a minute, the TV plugger's going, the digital promotion person's going, there's three people in loosely what we call the marketing team yeah. flying to this video shoot, staying in a hotel for two days. Um, that's the difference between the little engineer mixing the album tracks and me getting someone like Chenzo to actually make it all sound a bit better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> quite a lot better and you just think this is bollocks isn't it this is utter bollocks huh? 
Yeah. Who would, you know, what's more, it's just, but this is um, a battle that's been going on for about 45, 50 years. <laughs> so this is nobody's won. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if the gap. Yeah, you, you can't, there's no simple way of describing it. Fundamentally, a record label will stay in. If the artist's good, and they're getting some attention from somewhere, mm. and they're not losing money, mm -hmm. the label will stay in. That's the culture. Right, so the culture is option to pick up. You look at the last album, and you think, oh, yeah, it didn't have a big hit, but we sold 50 or 60,000 albums, got some banging reviews, you know, got nominated for a few bits and bobs. Yeah, roll again. Uh, and the the guy at the top's got to want to roll again. Because mm. the, the message through the building, if once the guy at the top loses interest, that's just like, that means if I'm the little product manager, I just switch off. Right. I'm not, not under any pressure on this one. So it's, it's as an NR guy, you've got to manage all that as well. But you've sure. certainly got to be aware of it and accept that a lot of it is, you know, so essentially, a bit like the weather you, is out of your control. So essentially, as an NR guy, you feel like you're the link between. You're a double agent. The uh, yeah, the artistic uh, endeavor of the artist and the harsh realities of mm. the business. Mm. Mm. Um, let's wrap this up, Chris. Um, we've been we've been going for we've been going for a while. We just uh, haven't talked about the nerdy stuff. The nerdy stuff. We, 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 yeah. We, we, next time, man. I'm quite big on the nerdy stuff. Um, As you probably guessed. Yeah. Like I said, but th thanks very much. Does that any of that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Why did it go on for so long? Because because it's you. Because it's you, Chris. Is it my fault? <laughs> I think so. Are they really long-winded stories?